Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This week on Truth and Movies, Rian Johnson brings Blades of Glory to his murder mystery caper, Knives Out. I suspect foul play and eliminated no suspects. Matty Diop makes history with her directorial debut, Atlantics. Suleiman Murphy. But Jennifer Kent explores history's ugliest side in her colonial horror, The Nightingale. They close. And in Film Club, we question if Eyes Wide Shut really did deserve the cancelling it received 20 years later. I have seen one or two things in my life, but never, never anything like this. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Hello to you movie truthers, Beth Webb here keeping the hosting seat toasty for Michael Leader and I'm joined today by Little White Lies editor David Jenkins. Hello to you David. Hi. And we have a first time podder in the studio with us. Hello to you Lou Thomas. Hi Beth. How are you feeling about being here Lou? Ready to go. (laughs) Fantastic (laughs) and what a week we've got. So we have a massive lineup of films ahead of us to delve into, plus a very special interview from the Nightingale's breakout star, Ashling Franchosi. But first, let us step tentatively into the world of Rian Johnson's latest creation, Knives Out. Knives Out, a detective investigates the death of a patriarch of an eccentric, combative family. I suspect foul play and eliminated no suspects. I'm Detective Lieutenant Elliot, and this is Trooper Wagner. We just want to ask a few questions. We understand the night of his demise, the family have gathered to celebrate your father's 85th birthday. How was it? The party? my dad's death oh it was great now David you reviewed Knives Out for the magazine could you tell us a little bit about the film please yeah no it's an interesting one and I think it's one that I think has an inbuilt level of excitement because it's been directed by someone who has gone off and supped from the teat of the giant franchise cow cash cow (laughs) and, uh, and lived to tell the tale Rian Johnson is someone who is a very canny character. He kind of keeps one foot in indie cool hipsterdom and is is a very kind of avuncular Twitter presence. But he also comes from this background of making these really weird idiosyncratic films like Brick and The Brothers Bloom and Looper, which are, you know, they're genre films, but with a very modern twist to them. He's really interested in toying with narrative and an expectation and for me he's a bit more interesting Christopher Nolan. He's like a Christopher Nolan who's willing to sort of like yeah. push the gear up from 4 to 5. I still think Brick is probably one of his best films and actually Knives Out is a bit of a callback to Brick really in that it's a murder mystery. And can you tell us a little bit about what the film is about? Indeed. Uh yes, you so you have this uh 
this family, uh, the Thromblies, um, <laughs> who are this very well-to-do uh, but but quite dysfunctional clan. The patriarch is is a guy called Harlan Thromble, Thromble. Uh, We're going to do this a lot this episode, Throm, I think. <laughs> Thromby, Thromby. Yeah, sorry. Harlan Thromby, played by Christopher Plummer, who is himself a kind of Agatha Christie-like writer of murder mystery novels, has made a lot of money and has been kind of seeding it out to his slightly ne'er-do-well in-laws and, and children, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, and you've got Michael Michael Shannon and Don Johnson and Tony Collette, and you've got their kids as well who are like internet trolls and <laughs> and kind of woke liberal liberal arts college types, and there's this real kind of melting pot of political and psychological types yeah. in the family and you you have the home help who is played by Anna de Armas and she's the only one who Harlan Thromby actually has any kind of respect and fondness for mm. and everyone can kind of tell that he is this sage like overseer and he uh he's very kind of in touch with I guess sort of morality on a wider scale and like what people deserve and how people should live and he he's not someone who's just going to hand over his money and let these people fritter it away and there's a sense that he believes that Marta played by Anna Dar- Armas is actually the person who would benefit from the most and the money the most and deserve it the most when yeah. he, when he eventually dies then he dies <laughs> in, sus- <laughs> he does in suspicious circumstances and then onto the scene comes Daniel Craig's Benoit Blanc who is, I'm not even going to attempt to do the accent. No, I think that's wise. <laughs> uh, but he's a kind of southern, slick southern detective, yes. or one step ahead of the game, is a little bit eccentric himself. And yeah, Rian Johnson just takes that setup and runs with it. And to say any more... I think would spoil it. Yes, we are stepping tentatively with this section of the podcast and very much honouring the mystery element of the murder mystery here. That said, we will say that Anna de Armas is probably the film's secret weapon. Would you agree with that, Lee? Yeah, in more ways than one. Again, it's difficult to talk about without getting very spoilery. And she's also, as one might expect perhaps you've got this rich family and she's the help so she's kind of the butt of the joke in some ways but that is played quite knowingly I mean it's been talked about there's quite a good running joke about forgetting what country she's from which is quite amusing but oh you want to say so much but we can't no Um, we are going to be seeing a lot more of her moving forward aren't we which is very exciting Um, she will be starring opposite Craig in uh, No Time to Die Um, she's playing Norma Jean aka Marilyn Monroe in a biopic coming up as well do you think she deserves the kind of star trajectory that she she's got ahead of her she's definitely on the way you can, you can sort of feel that I mean as you said that's interesting I'd forgotten actually that she's going to be in the new Bond film mm. but as we know sometimes being in a Bond film as a woman historically has not always led to great things it can be a sort of token um, thing but particularly with Phoebe Waller-Bridge yeah on, 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 on um, sort of co-writing duty as she has been one would hope that things would be a bit more interesting for her rather than just some sort of you know t- like I say token gesture something to look at yeah, yeah. Now let's get into the rest of this cast because we've got Captain America versus James Bond versus Laurie Strode. Why do you think all these incredible people who have come from these incredible backgrounds all seek out Johnson and and want to work with him? Well, you know, he's this high-profile guy now and uh, a film like Knives Out, you, you kind of think it's a one for him movie. It's a film that you get to make after you've had like a big studio mega hit. I mean, it's cynical to even to suggest it, but like you just have this idea of like when an actor goes and does a big studio movie and it's them standing in front of a green screen, like talking to a tennis ball for hours and hours. You can't imagine that the value of that as a job is that high. Whereas like, and I know people will probably say, no, it's, it's that's rubbish. It's, it's so much fun making those movies. But you feel like a film like this is actually like a fun endeavor. And it's something that you, it's a little kind of thing that you want to be involved in. And you can imagine that, oh, Rian Johnson's doing his follow-up to um, Last Jedi. It's his own little kind of weird Agatha Christie riff. 
and it's going to be his vision and he's going to have control over it and it's going to be like a proper film you know mm. like I realise I'm being very backhanded to some big studio films here, but that's <laughs> un, 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 unintentional but yeah I think historically you tend to have these moments that you know that it's the cast that te- that actually make these films work yeah whereas like selling an audience on the idea of like a very old-fashioned antiquated throwback to Agatha Christie that might be a bit of, seem like a bit of a hard sell especially to a younger audience mm. but then when you can say hey cap cap in a in in some uh tan knitwear some of the most delicious knitwear i've seen in cinematic history i will say the knitwear game is strong in this one and um <laughs> yeah so so the actors are they're getting to have a good time but they're also like getting to sort of work their charms as salesmen a bit exactly so like, you know, you, you've got these many hooks now for people to kind of put their money down for this one and they should do I and think. they should Lee, now this is this is um chris evans first proper venture on screen since uh, avengers how do you think he did he's really good i mean it's a He's ultimately a bit of a scumbag, but <laughs> it's not without nuance. I just want to circle back, if I may, to something that struck me when David was talking about the ensemble cast and, you know, when you're working at big budgets and you're just working against sort of tennis balls and stuff like that, mm. that this is one of those rarities where you're sort of very aware that the cast seems to be having a great time um, among themselves but yet we as an audience also do and how often do you say oh it must have been you often say oh it must have been great fun to make this but then everyone's like oh bothered when you're watching it (laughs) you know whereas this is that that actual sweet spot of yeah the audience love it and yeah it looks like the cast are having a great time yeah that 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 sense of fun is like actually infectious rather than like you know, repellent, <laughs> as it so often is. Exactly. And a special, um, I think a special shout-out is due to Tony Collette in this film. He kind of acquires this Gwyneth Paltrow-esque lifestyle coach, online self-brand nightmare, and pulls it off just admirably, doesn't she? Well, it's worth mentioning that I think we've talked a lot about the, the sort of genre element to this and, and the fact that it, you know, it's playing on it well-known, well-worn material and, and narrative devices. But actually, one of the things that makes this very contemporary is it is quite political. And that comes in the characterizations across the board. Like whether you, like Don Johnson's character is obviously, you know, right-wing and then you've got, yeah, Tony Collette is left-wing and there there are kind of various reference points and you know, it comes through in the dialogue in, in quite subtle ways about the the sort of politics of the characters and, and a lot of their kind of, their rage comes from their connection of, of being very disappointed in the world and um, and 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 angry. So um, and all this politics also feeds into how they treat Marta mm. and, and ultimately the film kind of evolves into a bit of a kind of class war. Yeah. I can see you self-editing as you're yes, saying this. Yes. We're very keen not to give anything away exactly. for you. <laughs> the point is that there is a sort of thematic richness underneath and there is sort of political motivation to the film rather than it just being a very fun frolic that doesn't really leave anything with you. It really sort of tries to, to be more than than a just just a workout. Yeah, and it doesn't sacrifice the fun in, in doing that, which no. I think is what makes it so magical. A final question for you, and then we will move on to scores. I wanted to know how you felt about Daniel Craig's career outside of Bond, because he really shines in this film from what I can see. And I wonder if how we feel about Bond in in his career trajectory generally, because it feels like it's these parts. I mean, I really liked him in Logan Lucky. I thought he was great. And I wonder if Bond is something that will perhaps hold him back when he kind of reflects back on his career. I don't know. I mean, the hundred million or whatever he's got for a couple of films probably won't hold him back in uh, in his life. But uh, as we know, there is more to life than money. But it's easy to say that when you got it. Not that I have. But um, you can see him going from strength to strength because he's, he's. I think to me, he has actually proven that he can do, like you say, Logan Lucky, and even before that, stuff like Road to Perdition years ago, and so on and so on and so on. I feel like he's still on the rise, certainly as a professional as well as being a star. And actually, what's one thing that's quite interesting, I know David was talking a minute ago about um, Johnson being the big pull for these actors, which is obviously the case. Johnson himself has come out and said that the big thing was they cast Daniel Craig first and then literally everybody wanted to work with Daniel Craig around that. 
So, you know, maybe there's something truth in that, some truth in that as well, that he is a big pull for, certainly for his co-stars as, as much as anyone else, as well as obviously the producers who see the box office cash coming in. My, my take on Craig is that I think when the story of Daniel Craig is written, that Bond will be the anomaly in his career. Because I remember seeing a film, like one of his earliest ever f- roles, and I can't remember the title of the film, but I just remember he's got like bleach blonde spiky hair in it. It was his kind of breakout role. It was sort of mid-late 90s. And since then, he always just cropped up as this kind of character actor. He was like this of no fixed abode, did accents, you know, was in all kinds of roles as baddies, as goodies, in genre, in drama, in indie, in mainstream. And, you know, he was just, you know, he just cropped up in things. And before he became Bond, he's not someone I ever really kind of thought either way of you know Mm. I thought yeah he's a a solid presence but I wouldn't ever say that he was the kind of benchmark of a good film you know he I would never go to a film because Daniel Craig was in it and then he was in Bond became his icon and finally got the big lead role that potentially been working for but then he's done Logan Lucky and this and you know it it seems like he's a bit more relaxed he doesn't need to be there's there's a sense that he's not doing these films to get the next paycheck you know and I would not be sad to see another Benoit Blanc film. Yeah, I think we can all (laughs) heartily agree with you there. So with that in mind, let's move to the score section for Knives Out. Lou, could you let me know what you made of this, please? Oh, it's a solid four star for me. It's like very good, worth seeing, something you'd recommend to both sort of serious cineasts and, you know, it's it's sort of mum friendly as well. So, (laughs) you know. Yeah, same. Uh, Fours across the board for me. I think we've focused on the positives in this review. I would say that there is maybe like some of the the Thromley family characters are a little thinly shaded. We talked about before how they have this political element, they have these opinions and it kind of what drives their motivations. I found watching the film there's something a bit single note about them, like there's a touch of pantomime baddie about them. Yes. Which didn't really sit massively well with me, but it that doesn't prevent the film from doing what it sets out to do. I think I would agree with you there. And again, I'll be boring and say falls across the board, but I would agree there are some fantastic, bombastic characters in there that I would have just liked to have seen put to better use. And I think it's always tricky when a film pivots on big twists as to whether it will hold up for a second viewing, but I just have every faith that it, that it would. And I love that Johnson... There's something about Johnson where he just so tangibly loves his characters... Like And I think that really, really transcends in this film and it makes it such an enjoyable experience. So, yeah. One thing to say, actually, it's 130 minutes. So it's it's a long film, but it absolutely, it feels like 80 minutes. Yes, I would concur. It is so, it's a speedy film. Mm. It's a speedy, speedy film. So, well, there we go. That's uh, some speedy film recommendations for you this week off to a good start and next up we have Jennifer Kent's follow-up to The Babadook this is The Nightingale So next on the table, The Nightingale, uh, which is Jennifer Kent's follow-up to The Babadook. The film follows Claire, a young Irish convict, who chases a British officer through the rugged Tasmanian wilderness following a terrible act of violence he committed against her family. They close. What are you doing? Ah! I don't want no trouble. I'll sell my rock, I'll sell my wheel. For the podcast, we had Adam Woodward, who is Little White Lies digital editor, speak with Ashling Franchosi, who is the star of the film. She spoke about the film's harsh filming conditions and working with director Jennifer Kent. In terms of the practicalities of it, you know, Jen obviously wanted to make sure that we're all really safe. So we basically choreographed it. I mean, really, within an inch of its life, we practiced it over and over again, but without lines and without emotion. She really wanted to leave that till the day that we were actually performing it. Um, we had a stunt coordinator and obviously like a safety guy or whatever on set with us. Um, so physically, we all felt unbelievably safe. We'd also done a lot of workshopping. She didn't, we never rehearsed scenes with their lines ever in any context, but in terms of the relationship that we needed to have between myself and Aiden as a, as a unit with the soldiers, 
obviously myself and Sam and myself and, and, and Damon, um, we just did a lot of different improvs and workshops to kind of create this strange power dynamic and so that was that was one element and for me a huge part of the preparation emotionally for that scene had been done through months and months of research and months of looking at documentaries about sexual violence violence against women um ptsd i met um i worked with a clinical psychologist a lot as well she was attached to the project she worked with jen and she facilitated me meeting victims of rape um who would share their stories with me and um social workers in uh, centres for domestic abuse which I, this the fact that those women shared their stories with me was really really powerful and, and humbling and, and it kind of just gave me a huge sense of responsibility which on one hand felt like a pressure but on the other hand really just made me want to go a thousand percent all into these performances because I wanted to not only give a truthful and authentic performance for the sake of the story in the film but also kind of honour them I guess in having been so generous and sharing their stories with me and did that kind of come more from you wanting to do that or Jennifer or um, it was a two way thing I mean Jen is an incredible actress director and so she kind of with all of us with Sam too like facilitated us you know meeting people we needed to meet and having the conversations we need to have so um, yeah it was I mean she had said this is a possibility do you want to do it and I said yes of course um, and then also for that scene and the dynamic with myself and Sam you know, there was a conversation early on about perhaps us not hanging out together too much, that we kind of would keep this distant mm. relationship or dynamic. And then as soon as we started workshopping some of the material, we just thought, no, we need to do the total opposite and like get to know each other as well as we possibly can so that we can trust each other completely and 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 allow ourselves to be as vulnerable as we have to do those scenes um, as, well, as best we can. So, yeah, it was kind of a multi-layered preparation. So this is a very interesting film to bring to the table, certainly one that has brought a lot of opinions out in people. It led to walkouts at Sydney Film Festival. The reason being that there are a number of very measured, very graphic accounts of sexual assault, mostly on the film's heroine, played by uh, Franchosi, who we heard just there, who plays Claire. Now, the magazine praised the film and said it was a, a breathtaking piece of work, certainly. Luke, could you tell us a little bit more about it and, and how you reacted when you first saw it? Sure. First of all, I should maybe set Jennifer Kent up from what I knew before seeing The Nightingale, which is probably the same as a lot of people. You see The Babadook and it's a kind of great genre film and it's kind of... It's it's not particularly brutal or gruesome, but there are a few sort of jump scares and stuff like that in it. And you, it's just a very solid sort of genre work, which has sort of had a second life in that the Babadook as a, as a character has kind of become this icon in the LGBTQ plus community. So you see the Babadook single up at Pride marches and stuff like that, which is, you know, obviously great for any filmmaker, I, I think. Well, this, as you've probably heard and, and, and the word is out there, is a completely different kettle of fish. It's a kind of rough and ready, savage sort of... What would you call it? Yeah, I mean, I kind of, it is realist in many senses. But, you know, it's about imperialism, it's about colonialism, and it's about ultimately the way the British have, have sort of clamped down on the Tasmanian sort of natives and treat this this woman in a really bad way as well. Um, like you say, that the sexual assault scenes are graphic and it's interesting because while they're not as... This is obviously quite a tough one for for a man to talk about because most of the the sexual violence is it is about what is done to a woman, and it's very much like she is seen as an object and worth worth literally less than nothing, and it is pretty harrowing. But what is interesting, it's not as extreme as some of the French New Wave horror we've we've seen in the last few years, but it is pretty stomach churning. Those scenes are difficult to watch, but kind of after that, it really becomes a. a a relatively straightforward revenge saga. And to be honest, yeah, I've got a lot of time for that as well. You know, those can be done can be done really well. And I think after that kind of incendiary first act, it it for me it doesn't it's not like a masterpiece, but it is it is sort of worthy of watching. And the performances in particular, I know we sort of touched upon, but the performances are top of the line. So Franchosi, she's uh, had smaller parts in stuff like Game of Thrones, but this is really her big breakthrough kind of moment and yeah she's she's incredible she's nuanced and she's what is fundamentally a very tough role I think for anyone to play there's obviously degrees of brutality and there's she spends most of the film 
distraught, really, but she's not purely a victim. There is strength in what she does when she links up with this Tasmanian native, um, a guy called Billy, who's played by, and again, this is a tough one for me to pronounce with my dodgy South London accent, uh, <laughs> Bakali Ganambar, I think. I think that's how you pronounce it. And um, she hires him, and then they go and they trek through the wilderness after Hawkins, who is the officer who's done all this injustice to her and her family. So it's quite simplistic in its sort of narrative. It reminded me very much of something like The Proposition, you know, the John uh, Hillcoat film, in that it is savage, but it doesn't feel, to me, like it would be much worse than what, what went down at the actual time of it. You know, you, you hear these reports and, you read, and if you read up a little bit, the stuff that was done in, in Australia and Tasmania at the time to both natives and to convicts and stuff, it was, it was you know, unspeakable. David, what were your thoughts on this? What were your thoughts on how Kent handled this as a director? I was really impressed. It was a film, actually, that it took a while for me to actually catch up with it. And it's something that I've wanted to see for a long time and actually you know, make sure I saw in, in the best conditions possible. And, yeah, I caught up with it finally. And, yeah, it was fascinating. It's like a, it's a film that I was watching and it constantly oscillated between me thinking this is a quite sort of solemn, sober historical drama. Obviously one that's very unflinching and willing to, to, to sort of get its hands dirty in, t- in terms of what it's showing, um, how it depicts violence, forcing you and the characters to, to look at the consequence of their actions. But there's also, I think, carrying over from a film like The Babadook. You can tell that Jennifer Kent is someone who is deeply versed in horror, the Babadook was a sort of maternal, almost sort of Spielbergian horror film. It wasn't what you'd call quote unquote like hard horror. Whereas this film, I was thinking of films like Last House on the Left and Cannibal Holocaust, like all these films that were like banned on the eighty in the eighties yeah. on video. Like, and that's not necessarily to say that it's a gory film and that, that it's kind of and it's leery, but like it's a disturbing one though. Yeah, no, it's it's disturbing and it's a revenge film. But there is something very melancholic about the idea that revenge as a concept is quite futile and you may have had the worst things in the world done to you and your family, which is what Claire has done to her family. But ultimately, like when it comes to the moment of actually, you know, eye for an eye, it's not it's not as easy or as satisfying or as uh, gratifying as you think it's going to be. Yeah, I think that in there lies lies an important point because there's nothing gratuitous about this film. There's nothing, you know, there have been so many instances of sexual violence portrayed on screen where it's used simply for the point of being gratuitous or as a plot point. I know that that was a big criticism in a season of Game of Thrones where a major character was raped simply for the, the point of moving a narrative on, whereas obviously this is an act of, of deep emotional violence that's committed against this woman. And I think it's it's an important watch and an important piece of history that has never been shown before and is shown with great care and a very steady eye and with great research that has gone into it, something worth noting, the, the language spoken by the Tasmanian Aboriginals in the film is something called Palawa Kani, um, and it's near extinct. So um, this is the first time it's ever been used in a major picture and also there were clinical psychologists on set. So it was handled with with the best intentions, I think, as well. So As you say, like it's I think what makes it really interesting and great is that on one hand it's a very kind of personal focused story about the night the, the the reason she's called the nightingale is because she is this songbird who is forced to sing for the for the British soldiers in the at the beginning of the film. And it's her nickname given to her by Sam Claflin's character who plays Hawkins, who He's a fascinating character in his own way. He's one of the most unrepentantly evil characters I can recall seeing for a long time. I mean, like the, the, I bow down to Kent's commitment of actually writing a character who is in, almost impossible to extend empathy towards, and yet there's still something quite human about him. There is not like pantomime villain element to him. He's very kind of his anger feels real. But but yeah, you're focusing on her, and as you're watching it this very kind of narrow idea of a a woman seeking revenge broadens out into this question of, well, what about the abuses meted upon the Aboriginals and which we witness many, many times throughout throughout the film, almost as kind of incidental moments. 
and you, you kind of ask, well, if this is what she's allowed, then how should this this idea pay out on on a kind of geopolitical level, mm. on a historical level? And without giving too much away, she sort of tries to not answer the question, but like she she tries to deal with it. In, yeah. But by the end of the film, through Billy's character, and it's just really interesting how it what begins as kind of basically kill bill ends <laughs> sure ends as ends as as quite a kind of you know a, a big statement on remembering um the awfulness of colonialism the atrocities yes well i think with that in mind it's time for us to go to some scores david would you like to let us know what you made of this I'm going to say three, four, four because I probably wasn't the greatest fan of the Babadook. I didn't. I thought it was pretty good, but not massively my cup of tea. I think this is a far more interesting and enduring film and a brave film, and I'm glad it was made. And I'd be absolutely fascinated to see what Jennifer Kent does next. Mm. And I, I hope it's something as bold and original as as, as this. Wonderful. And, and unflinching. Yes, and flinching is the word. That's mm. the takeaway, I think. Uh, Lou, how about you? Again, I thought it was very strong. I'd probably go fours across the board because I, I was probably more into The Babadook than David. So I, I came into this thinking, especially there was a lot of festival hype before I had a chance to see it. And um, I think it really does deliver, considering it's not, you know, a revenge, you know, a revenge story. OK, we've seen them all a million times, but I hesitate to remember a revenge film that's been quite as interesting and, and there's been as much to it as this one. Wonderful. And I'm the same fours across the board. The the Babadook is when I really started to like horror again. That was a turn in the genre for me. Uh, for again, it's like medicine. This is a very hard film to swallow, but, but very, very good in its intentions and in what it is saying and then for again I just I hope this this film's legacy kind of outlasts the walkouts and the scandal that's kind of come around it and is remembered for the good intentions that it's set out with next up we've got Atlantics from actress turned filmmaker Matty Diop In a popular suburb of Dakar, workers on the construction site of a futuristic tower without pay for months decide to leave the country by the ocean for a better future. David, if you could tell us a little bit about the film, please. Sure. It's um, set in Senegal, in Dakar specifically and it opens on a workers dispute at a big what looks like some seven star hotel which is being built on the coastline and the the workers are trying to get their back pay off of the foreman and the foreman basically has gone on holiday so they're not getting money so they walk off and the character we're following who is the sort of head of this miniature uprising is called Suleiman and he goes back into town to meet his girlfriend well, maybe not girlfriend, but a lady friend, shall we say, <laughs> a, la- a lady, a lady caller um, called Ada, played by Mama Benita Sane, and she is due to be wed against her will to this very kind of comically slick guy who just toss, who wears kind of billowy white shirts and is is abroad most of the, like six months of the year, and he's this kind of weird nouveau riche huckster. And obviously the fam- the family want her to marry someone wealthy, but she her heart belongs to Suleiman. And they have a big night planned and and a meeting point, and she goes to the meeting point to meet Suleiman, and he doesn't turn up. And the film is essentially asking what what happened to Suleiman. And it's it's a film that just I loved it. It's one of I think one of my favourites of the year. I think what what Matty Diop does is. She sort of reels this yarn, which I kept watching it, thinking this 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 is going to be a kind of oh, isn't the world awful? Aren't we aren't we awful people? Aren't we you know? Isn't the West or you know like isn't capitalism awful? And and there is elements of that in the film, but it sort of deals with them in in such a kind of interesting, intriguing, and eccentric way. Yes. That and a really beautiful way as well. I mean it just on a on a kind of visual uh aesthetic oral level, this film is just you know, it just works so well. I mean, it just, it just looks and sounds incredible. There's a cracking uh, cinematographer that's worked with Matty Diop on this, Claire Mathon, who um, also did the cinematography for Lady on Portrait Fire. of a Lady on Fire. So definitely Good want to watch that. Excellent year for her. Lou, 
Big words from David on this. Would you agree? Is this one of your films of the year? Did you know very much about Matty Diop going into the film? I knew very little about Matty Diop going into the film, but I want to know a lot more after seeing this. Sorry, I mean, obviously I knew about the can hype and the, the, the prize. She, uh, was it uh, the jury prize she got a can? Or? She did. She won the grand prize. Grand prize, at, sorry. Uh, and was the first woman of colour who yes. um, was entered into competition. Yeah. So greatly deserved. I may be not quite as strong as David on it, but I do feel that it's really interesting. And part of the, the reason I like it, aside from the fact that it's set decor, it, it's got stuff that we don't really see very much, certainly not um, in main, sort of super mainstream cinema. I know it's not super mainstream, but the fact that it's going on Netflix, so I'm sure it'll get a big audience, which I, I feel which I feel like a film like this really deserves because it does so much. It's got humour in it and it's got, you know, it speaks about different ways of living. And, of course, there's, there's a load of secret stuff that we can't really talk about without giving much away. <laughs> but it does, I suppose the way to, to say it is, you think it's one particular film and it's not. It's really three or four different sorts of film. But rather than being an awful mess like that sounds like, it kind of interweaves these different strands and these different ideas about not about filmmaking and the way stories are told and, oh, is it this film and is it that film? And, oh, I really want to tell everything. And they, there's like there's like police procedural elements, which are totally crazy. I can definitely talk about that. But there are other bits and pieces. And this is what I find so interesting about it is that, like a lot of culture... Like I said, sometimes when you get two or three different strands, it kind of makes it into a mess and makes it nothing. But this, it's almost like a new type of filmmaking has been created by this blend of stuff. It, it's very, like I think the thing that works so well for me is that it's yeah she she sort of melds these ideas together in this very unself conscious way. Mm. You don't you, you know I think a lot of a lesser director would have been very self satisfied with the way that it kind of switches and flits and flicks between these you know modes and and tones and themes and and she just does it in the in the most natural offhand way like just completely natural don't want to spoil it but it's a film of very many distinct parts but never never feels like anything but a single focused whole movie if that makes sense yeah. yeah it's kind of like this really delicious soup where everything's been blended together <laughs> rather than a lumpy stew where you're like oh these bits don't go together <laughs> well, that's the made blend. me hungry yes. more it's than a, anything. It's a well, but... well blended film yes that's a perfect way of putting it it's making my mouth water somewhat I think we should crack on with some scores Lou you um, have come in very enthusiastically with this However, what was your anticipation for the film festival my anticipation, I will go, oh, I don't know. I'll, I'll go four again. Sorry, that's really boring. <laughs> and it is, oh, you know what? I'm going to go four across the board again. And it is really boring to go with the same score. But it, for me, it is. It's not quite a masterpiece, although I do love what it, what it does. Would I want to see a film like this every single day? I don't know. I'd want, certainly want to see a film that surprises me as much as this one every day. Great. David. So I, I in the magazine I reviewed it and I gave it fours across the board but I would actually update my review now because it's a film that has, that has really stuck with me and is one that I definitely want to watch again like very soon so probably four, four, five. Amazing. Retrospect. That's what it's all about. I've actually got some some retrospect now. Hindsight's a beautiful thing. Indeed. And you can uh, follow that up on Friday when it's released on Netflix. I'm coming in with a five for anticipation. I love Matty Diop. Um, she's got an amazing body of short films that I implore you to go away and find if you can. And also, just in terms of the historical context, the first woman of colour to be entered into competition. And I was very lucky to see the film at Cannes. So to see her just striding up the croisette with her cast in arms, it was it was. Oh, it just gave me goosebumps. It was gorgeous. Um, and then four and four for me. Some of the sub-narratives for me just fell a little bit short and I preferred the stronger elements, certainly the more political elements of the film. But it was just such an enterprising piece of filmmaking. It was so ambitious for a first feature, so uncompromising. And you've just, you've got to respect that so much. So I think that's a glowing recommendation for that. It's on Netflix on Friday. Go and beat that algorithm and, and seek it out, please. Okay, and that brings us to our Truth and Movies Film Club, a juicy entry this week, which has really, or used to really, divide people when it was released. This is Stanley Kubrick's swan song, Eyes Wide Shut. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Eyes wide shut, a New York doctor embarks on a harrowing night-long odyssey of sexual and moral discovery after his wife reveals a painful secret to him. I have seen one or two things in my life, but never, never anything like this. All right, so we've got a few listener comments. Uh, David, if you could give us the first, please. It's the most gloriously unsexy film of all time and gets better on every viewing. Kubrick was trolling us all. David Dinch. David Dinch on Twitter. Thanks for that, David, I guess. We've got one from at John W5555 who says, I love it. Everything about it is designed to unsettle the audience. The strange cadence of the dialogue, the pacing, the unresolved mystery that runs through it and not least the casting. Such a strange experience. And then we've got somebody else, Heisenberg Pod. Slightly different take. Boring, shallow and pretentious. <laughs> Pity this was Kubrick's last film. What was the point of this movie? It did not say anything. Well. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Polarising to say the least. Luke, can you tell me about the first time you saw this film? Well, I can't really tell you much about it because it was 20 years ago and I've got the world's worst memory. But what I can (laughs) tell you about it is how I remember thinking at the time I was actually big into my Kubrick, like most people should be into Kubrick if they're not, well, they need to change that in my opinion. Uh, I know he's an obvious person and an obvious reference point for many big and small filmmakers, but so what, right? There's a reason for that. But let's not get into the rest of his work. I remember thinking after I saw Eyes Wide Shut, it's my least favourite Kubrick that I'd seen at the time. I was like 18, 19 when it it came out. And to be honest, what did I know at 18, 19? Well, to be honest, nobody knows anything at 19, I don't think. But still, it's a... A quiet film in many respects, but having watched it again for this, it's it's actually a pretty great bit of work. What's changed for you? What's, What's changed? changed? What would you go back and tell nineteen-year-old Lee that you would say to Hope and Change? Oh, I'd say, grow up, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Which I have in the, in the intervening years. You know, I got a bit greyer, but you know. Um, <laughs> The truth is, what did I know about psychoanalysis or psychiatry or anything of that when I was 18, 19, nothing? Whereas now, and especially when you know that it's kind of based on this Viennese text, it's very Freudian. It's a film about sex, but an adult film about sex. The orgy scenes by sort of today's standards probably wouldn't cause too many eyelids to be batted, I, I don't think. The casting of it, of course, is what still stands out. The fact that you've got Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman playing this psychologically warring couple. They're sort of flirting at parties and then they're talking about their sexual desires. And then, of course, the Cruise character is going physically to go and actually 
explore those and to actually go and see what what is at the heart of his sort of sexual interest. And we hear about Kidman's. The original book it was actually the translation of it from um, Austrian, I think, his dream story. And that is it. A lot of it, you are thinking that as with so many films, oh, how much of this is dream and how much of this is reality. So that's quite interesting. Again, like very Freudian. Yeah, I, I liked it a lot more on second viewing. Okay. David, what do you think Cruz and Kidman in particular brought to this? There was rumours that it was going to be Alec Baldwin and Kim Basinger in the leads. Steve Martin was considered for the role in the 80s. Um, wow. <laughs> vastly different film that would have been. Um, what, what do you think that they, if anything, brought to, brought to the, the two leads here? Well, it's a fascinating film and, and I think that... <sighs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's a hard not one to know where to even start and, and I think that what Cruise brings to it for me is an element of comedy because um, I think it's very funny the notion that you've got the world's most desired film star male <laughs> film star making a film about how he can't have sex with anyone <laughs> yes. how he, he, he just seems to be rejected by everyone cuckolded by everyone, insulted by everyone. He he has this vision of himself which nobody else seems to understand or comprehend in the same way that he does. I'm not saying it's glib funny. It's it's There are lots of things about the film which show a sense of humour which I didn't think Kubrick had in, in, the, in the past. And there is an element of stunt casting. They, they were, you know, at, at that time, probably the most high profile power Hollywood couple in the world um, obviously they'd done um, uh, F- Far and Away together and, uh, <laughs> Days, of and Days of Thunder together <laughs> so you know this was part of a little, little kind of Cruise Kidman mini canon I think yeah I had a similar experience watching it like when it came out and just you know I was young and it was like this just doesn't make any sense to me. I, this is just this is just weird, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the whole the whole stuff about you know, like I think when you're kind of, you know, maybe let's call it immature, that his his drive is somewhat obscure. Like you, you don't really understand why he needs to go to this party. Why having this sort of dark night of the soul where he's wandering around New York looking for something you don't always know what why he wants to follow this weird chain of events and certain circumstances and coincidences and and then what's also happening you know what this kind of malign power is at the other side which is seemingly keeping him in in check and and keeping it in his pants i guess <laughs> um, he's sort of going up against this the force that is keeping him away from sexual gratification is is something that he can't comprehend. You know, there's an incredible dialogue scene at the beginning where they're sort of in a semi-clad state on a bed and they're having an argument and it just sort of goes on and on and on. And some of, you know, you, you're watching it. And I think, you know, going back to the Cruise-Kidman thing, like they, they had a fairly, um, you know, I think it's probably fair to say that their breakup was... You know, she was quite happy to be out of that that relationship, and you know, you watch this now, think, well, not how much was she acting, but you know, <laughs> there, 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 there was probably some other, you know, building her character probably had some extra added uh, bonus elements that she could draw on from her sort of real life experiences. So, yeah, this is probably my favourite of his films. I'm not, really? I'm, I'm not, but then I don't love Kubrick. I find him quite kind of cold and distant and soulless and very like pessimistic about that's what I like. about the world. <laughs> I, I, that side of him it always kind of overcomes the, the the sort of amazing technical aspects of the film. Even a film like 2001, I just can't get on board with. But I think this, I like the messiness and the weirdness, and I like that it's so because I mean, you know, he built all the sets and and. It, it it looks like this weird toy town version of New York, you know. Even the elements that you kind of question about the production, about the characters, about the geography, you know, the weird sequence in the dressing up shop. That, yeah. I mean, you know that you know, as you say, there is a sort of like dream element to it. Like, is it is this Kubrick's dream? You know, like it's there's just a lot going on. I think it's the one film of his that I think. Not only could you go with a group of people and see it and everyone have a different take on it, mm. but then you would have a different take on it yourself every time. you If you saw it every year, yeah. I think you'd probably have a different take on it. Because as you grow and you learn and you develop and mature, 
there's a kind of Rorschach vibe to it. Like, you know, you can just, you'll just see different things in, in the patterns. It's an abstract, experimental, weird film, and I, and, and I really love it. Great. Can I just mention something? And I'm not, I really, really hope it was done with comedic intention. But the, but the, the thing that literally made me like crack up by the end of the film is in nearly every scene, or every other scene at least, Tom Cruise introduces himself as a doctor. Right now, <laughs> now that, you can imagine, as you said, Steve Martin taking that on and it would be played in a totally different way. But with Tom Cruise, he literally... It, it, people, uh, he, he has to introduce himself to loads of different people. Like you say, the, the dressing up shop, uh, the, the fancy dress shop, and he goes to hospitals and literally everywhere he goes he's like oh yeah I'm a doctor and it's like like that absolves you like (laughs) oh I'm a doctor you wouldn't walk in and go well I'm a golf course greenskeeper and you know you wouldn't say your job that excuses you from being a complete nutter or from being a (laughs) pervert or whatever but it's like he says that and and you'll be supposed to go oh right but instead I really hope it was done deliberately for laughs because I was cracking up on him (laughs) well let's hope it was as well and that was also worth noting uh, Paul Thomas Anderson actually went to visit um, the couple on set and off the back of that offered Cruz the role of Frank TJ Mackey in Magnolia which is my favourite Cruz role so yes maybe he did take a little bit of that ego into his next project well lots to unpack there and unpack we did so what would be your film of the week David what would you ask people to go away and watch firstly I'd say all of them (laughs) if you're feeling brave Nightingale if you want to see incredible new talent Atlantics and if you if you want a bit of fun Knives out. Well, you've dodged my question admirably there. Well done. Uh, Lee, what would you you go away and ask people to go away and see? Well, I mean, in terms of pure interest, Atlantics is is probably the best, you know, in terms of offering something new. If you want to go for a few beers or go for a laugh and eat your popcorn and stuff, Knives Out is the, you know, that's just absolutely solid. I know that's an obvious thing to say, but there it is. I'd recommend Knives Out to more people. But, you know, if you want to be a bit smart and a bit cool, you know, everyone will be talking about Atlantic because it is really fresh and interesting. Right, thank you. I mean, you've both dodged that there. It's like being on question time with you two, but that's fine. It's a very strong week and we are very grateful to have been able to talk about these great films. I think you should see Atlantics. So next week, Michael will be back in the hosting chair talking about Honey Boy, So Long My Son, and in Film Club, The Umbrellas of Sherbrooke. I've been Beth Webb. I want to say thank you to our contributors. Thank you, David. Thank you. And thank you, Lee. Thank you. And this has been a Seven Digital production. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.